0: So we've been watching the breath, or maybe you've been doing some other form of concentration practice, samadhi. And one of the qualities of it is this focusing in, sort of focusing in, simplifying on one thing. And there's sort of an idea when we do that, that we're focusing on one simple thing that is staying there, that we can just stay with. And sometimes we can even get the idea that we're on the same thing all the time. But of course, if we look carefully, which you have been, we notice that even this one thing that we're paying attention to is not one thing at all. The breath, we say the breath, we use that idea, or it could be, we say metta, or sound. But it's not one thing, right? It's the beginning of an inhale. And then it changes quite dramatically. And then it ends. And then something else happens. So we focus on it as if it's staying put. But it doesn't at all. So what I want to talk about tonight is this shifting lens when we instead of thinking we're staying on one thing we start to get interested and really notice that no it's changing every moment it's changing and the fact that this happens with the breath really points to, it's the lens through which we look at things that affects our experience and what happens. If we're looking at the breath as if it's just one thing that we're focused on, and the simpler it gets, sometimes you might have focused like just on one point, with the idea that's really steady and I can just stay with it, then that's the lens through which we're focusing. And it does cultivate a kind of simplicity and a view that we can just stay with the one. But we can switch the lens. And this is the part of the practice, the seeing as we said in the title to this retreat, the seeing part of the practice, the different ways we can see what's happening, different lenses. And one of the most important of these lenses, and I'll talk quite a bit about how the Buddha pointed to this lens, is the lens of impermanence, the lens of change. And we can make choices about what aspect of our experience we're paying attention to. We can bring things into the foreground, like you may have noticed already, that you can bring the breath into the foreground and let the thoughts be in the background. We can also do this in a more subtle way. We can bring the breath into the foreground and we can bring the steadiness, the simplicity of it. Or we can bring in the fact it changes. So different ways of seeing lead to different impacts. And three ways of seeing that the Buddha pointed to as being important, you're very familiar with them, impermanence, through the lens of suffering and the release of suffering, and through the lens of anatta, or emptiness, non-self that lens so we're going to move now in this part of the retreat into working with and playing with these other ways of seeing what's happening and this is vipassana practice vipassana one translation of it is insight insight practice and so there's many many different ways of looking at experience in order to gain insight or wisdom. And one way that you might be familiar with is our simple, direct practice of mindfulness, where we just pay attention to whatever is happening, non-preferentially. You sit and you open up and you just watch what's happening. There's sound, sound. There's a breath, there's body. Sometimes we give the instructions, which you may have heard, of just pay attention to whatever is predominant, whatever has the strongest impact on you in this moment. And just watch that. And then watch the next thing that's predominant. And this is one way of practicing. Another way that is similar but a little different, is to look, for instance, at the fact that these different things that are happening are changing, that your experience is changing. And then we're maybe slightly less interest interested in the sound than in the fact that the sound is changing. And this is a particular way of practicing that I think is very, very useful. Very useful, and the Buddha pointed to it quite a way, quite a bit. Said it leads to liberation. That's kind of important. One of the things is relationship between the concentration and then this liberated way, liberating way of seeing. This is what he says in the Samadhi Sutta. He says, "Develop concentration, practitioners. A concentrated practitioner discerns things as they actually are present. And what does one discern as it actually is present? One discerns as it actually is that the I is unconstant, forms are unconstant." and so on. One discerns that the ear is unconstant, that the nose is unconstant, the tongue is unconstant. Everything, all of our sense gates are changing. So with the concentration, this is the point of it, to turn and see things as they actually are. And in the suttas, it says again and again, here's one version of it, one possesses wisdom that understands the arising and disappearance, which is noble and penetrating, and which leads to the destruction of suffering. Often in the suttas, there'll be a whole discourse, and then there'll there'll be a phrase, so-and-so, here's one, uh, the, Ruhula has this happen, the Buddha's son at some point. Ruhula sees that, the arising and the passing away. Or it sometimes says, sees with the Dhamma eye. Sees with the eye, the understanding, the point of view of the Dhamma, the arising and passing away. This understanding of impermanence is central to what the Buddha taught. And he says again and again, this is where liberation is. So it's the insight that there is X, some phenomena, and that it arises and it passes. And, If it's something that causes challenge to us, if it's suffering or in some form or another, there's not only the fact that it arises and the fact that it passes, but there's practice that we can do, allowing it to arise and pass. So, this process of seeing and understanding things as they truly are we do this at many different levels you know at one level there's the talking about it the reading about it that's what we're doing right now i'm i it's on a conceptual level you know and and this is the easiest level you know in some ways it's hard to talk about impermanence because we all go uh-huh Yep, i not not arguing with you, it's all impermanent. And that's not the level on which it's liberating. We have to take it more and more deeply into our practice. So this teaching on impermanence, though one might talk about it, it's best understood as a practice instruction not as a conceptual understanding that you're supposed to come to. So although uh, I'm going to talk about it some conceptually here, because that's, that's the option words have, I encourage you, even as I talk, to just sort of let it flow through you and see how it lands and resonates in you. If there's some place in you besides in your head that it kind of pings and a little under, little more understanding comes into you. And certainly in the coming days, playing with it. So there's the obvious level on which it take, it's there, sort of a gross level of the day. Yep, today changed. It's no longer morning, it's now evening. The season, it's spring, it was fall. And we experience this. The natural world is so moving forward in this way constantly changing there's also this these really huge um, aspects of change which sometimes can be quite useful in touching in on i recently um went down the grand canyon down the river and it's quite dramatic the way the geology there is as you're going down the river the the Geology is sloped so that you're cutting down through time as you go down. And, you know, at first you're going down a few million years and then a few hundred million years and then a billion years and somewhere along the way you realize it's completely incomprehensible. And the other thing that happens is you realize, with this huge expanse of time, that this blip of time, I mean, even if the blip of time is all of civiliza- civilization of the human species as we know it, it's still like that. Those rocks have been, been here and changing and rising and falling and oceans and it's quite dramatic when you think about it this great expanse and in the moment here there's me hanging on to some positive state as if it would last forever (laughs) forever is very very short and then on the other hand, sometimes we really sense the, the fleetingness of our experience, particularly the f- mort- our mortality sometimes touches in on us. My father-in-law just died last week, and it was quite um, dramatic feeling the fleetingness of his passing. It was about six days from when he went into the hospital and was diagnosed with uh, metastasized cancer till when he died. Sometimes somebody dies in its instant. We have no warning. And when we experience that, you know, not sort of remotely, but someone we care about or we get the diagnosis of you have something that's life-threatening, there's a way the impermanence really strikes us. We really get it. Oh, this is not forever. This is not forever. And it's such a gift if we can understand it, if we can take it in deeply. So much of our suffering, so much of our confusion is based in this misconception of permanence that we accidentally do a million times a day in all sorts of subtle ways. And I'll come back to that some. And... If we're seeing the subtlety of impermanence, we can start to see it more and more detailed. And that was where I started, with the fact that even a breath, each little piece of the breath, is arising and passing. And it's interesting, isn't it, that we often talk about arising and passing. There's no arising and staying and passing. Maybe we said that in the breath, you know, arise in the middle and the end. But every moment, as soon as it arises, it's already gone. Just listen to my voice as it goes by, as you hear it come in. And every single little piece of it, every moment of it is gone as fast as it arises. And the further you break it down, it keeps doing that. You can play with this. Listen to some sound that seems like it's very steady. You know, maybe there's a mechanical sound or something, but if you listen to it with refinement, with this mind cultivated with samadhi, you notice that even within that steadiness, there is still, each moment is come And gone. As quickly as it's here, it's gone again. This understanding, whether it's on the geologic scale or on the understanding of our own impermanence and mortality, or on this mic, all of these levels, it can be a little shocking to our system. And I want to just acknowledge that because it helps us understand that it is a part of our strategy for being in the world. You know, as we grew up, it, it was useful to have the ideas that things stuck around. And it can be uncomfortable to come into contact with the fact it's all on its way out as it comes in. Everything. Everybody, every moment, every sound. On the other hand, it can also lead to a sense of awe. To an amazement. Here's a poem for you called A Wave. Each wave follows the form, dancing the pattern with its own variation, crashing, fanning, slithering up the beach, the foam-wet squiggle line left as its only memorial. Two arms, two legs, a head and a heart, nothing special here, and yet, Only once will this happen. Only once will these eyes rest on the place where the wave was. Only once will this heart wait, wait for the vast ocean to break upon the shore in this single precious wave. Only once will this heart break open and tears fall leaving just this, salt water on sand. So though we protect ourselves from the impermanence, we think our safety is dependent on permanence. But if we can make contact and start to get some sense of The impermanence, then our struggle with the way things change has the opportunity to shift. Most of our struggles in our life are with change. I used to have, um, when I first started as a teacher, uh, quite a while ago now, people would fill out the forms and I'd often see, you know, in the comments, well, things are a little challenging, I'm in transition. And then I'd see, yeah, there's a transition, or something. And then finally I realized, right, of course, we're all in transition of one sort or another. And it's challenging for us. So our conceptual mind and the way our language works is it locks on to something and it makes it a noun. It says, this thing... A tree, this person, my house, my job, as if it's a solid thing. And this conceptual grab onto things gives us the sense of security that it's going to stay put, as I've said. But it's a misconception. It, there is, you know, if you say the name Susie, what Susie could we possibly be talking about? The one sitting here right now? Or the historical one? The one that, certainly the one that was here this morning, is not the same one that's here now. A lot's happened since this morning. You can check this for yourself. Was the experience you were having this morning the one you're having now? Are you somehow the same person you were an hour ago? Unchanged? There may be some continuity. There may be some things that, you know, we expect you're still in the same body that maybe has had a few changes, but it's not the same, even though the name has stayed the same. A tree, nice noun, solid, big trunk stays there, but they're constantly changing. I always am amazed. I come here to Spirit Walk and I walk out back and it's like, God, how can it be this different back here? This tree's fallen down. This one's got a branch that's leaning more. I could have sworn there was a bush here. It's very different. But our words and our concepts confuse us on this. And in this, we fail to see how everything is in flux and in relationship. That what is really happening in the world is this constant state of change, everything bumping up against, and impacting everything else. Moment after moment. And the invitation from the Buddha was to be willing to see this, see how it's all continuously changing. And his brilliance was that he saw the dukkha, dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness that we experience when we resist impermanence, when we resist anicca, the Pali word for impermanence dukkha is the resistance to anicca most of the time there's some uh, there's three kinds of dukkha often talked about it's mentioned a few times in the sutta. there's dukkha dukkha which is the dukkha of pa- like pain discomfort in the body something a direct impact on us of the unpleasant and this one might appear to have the least to do with impermanence but think about your response to even when you have a simple um, pain in your body a lot of times we go yeah i mean this pain is workable it's not that intense but what does the mind do it's gonna be here forever it's gonna get worse it's gonna we Get into all sorts of ideas that have to do with its staying or its ha, its whole relationship to permanence and impermanence. That that's where we often suffer the most. And then the second a second kind of dukkha is Sankara dukkha, the t- the dukkha of fabrications that things arise and they're unstable and they change they just come and they go there's a fundamental instability in the world um, physicists know this right it's all falling apart the buddha understood this too And then the last one, vipanara dukkha, has to do with the fact it's changing directly. Like that the pleasant things that we like are not going to stick around. So the Buddha sort of laid out a lot how this relationship between dukkha and impermanence. There's a wonderful, and that will Um, chant, a wonderful mm -hmm, chant in the Pali, but I'll read you the uh, English, which is, All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To live in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. To live in harmony with this truth brings great happiness we think it's gonna cause us all sorts of problems to acknowledge it but the truth is like so many things it's here anyway it's happening it's not like by admitting it that you make it happen you actually just come into alignment with truth Matthew Ricard puts puts it this way. One of the main pursuits of Buddhism is to bridge the gap between the way things appear and the way things are. That approach does not come just from a curiosity to investigate phenomena. It arises from the understanding that an incorrect perception of reality inevitably leads to suffering. So what is it to live in accordance with this? To live in accordance with this truth? There's a poem I really like by Gregory Orr. He says, If to say it once, and once only, then still to say yes. And say it complete. Say it as if the word filled the whole moment with its absolute saying. Later for but, later for if, now only the single syllable that is the beloved, that is the world. This is what we're training to do in our practice. This is the practice of insight to say yes and then it changes and to say yes this this too oh this is a big flood of emotion happening oh this is the emo- the experience of no emotion oh this is tiredness sloth torpor this is what thoughts Arise and disappear, what that experience is like. To say yes again and again. Some have called it the letting go of the argument with what is. Letting go of the argument with what is. Moment after moment. One of the amazing things about doing this is that when we let go of the argument with what is, an amazing amount of what otherwise would be unsatisfactory is quite tolerable. I think at least one of you was here. Was it the last time we taught the retreat that I was no. off? It was two times ago we taught together. So there were a couple, there was a, while back we were teaching this retreat and i think it was it's great i made it through the second day fabulous last that one retreat i didn't i woke up in the morning early in the morning and with a belly ache and it was quite intense and i thought oh this will go away and i went and got a heating pad etc and it didn't go away finally i went to get it went to a urgent care they sent me to a emergency room. They sent me to a room on the floor and they sent me to the operating room. And it was a pretty amazing day. I started it out in the teacher village and ended up in an operating room. It and it was perfect timing. It was my day to give the Dharma talk and at seven thirty they wheeled me into the operating room. <laughs> Said Donnelly, do you're on your own you know. But one of the things that was remarkable about this immense change of events in the day is I very much noticed throughout the day that I did not have resistance to what was happening. Uh, There were times, you know, probably most of you have been in an emergency room, either for yourself or for someone else it's not a very speedy place to spend time and i remember being in the emergency room and there would be these just really intense periods of pain you know where they'd ask me how what's your pain on a scale of 1 to 10 and i'd say somewhere between 9 and 10 and if it keeps going at this rate, I think probably what happens is you pass out, right? And, um, but it was a physical experience. There was not resistance. And so though the pain was intense, it was totally workable. It's hard to describe a little bit. But in some ways, there was all this pain, but there wasn't a problem. Sounds strange, doesn't it? But yeah, some of you are getting it. Yeah. there's not a problem. And I know for myself that was a very, very useful experience because I understood the immense amount of our suffering that comes from the resistance rather than from the experience itself. And you've probably experienced this, like you've been resisting, resisting, suffering, suffering, and then you like go, yep, yep, this is the way it is. This is the way my back is. This is the way my knee is. This is the person I've lost from my life. And there's something about that moment of coming to terms with reality. And this is what we practice for. This is what we're doing moment after moment on the cushion. Is we're connecting with what is the reality here. Ah, and now, and now. And what is it like to see that it changes and to drop the resistance to that? The very, another very important aspect, which Donald will talk about a little bit more tomorrow night, is that in this process of impermanence, a key aspect of what's happening is that one thing arises and it's depend- and then it affects what happens next. It doesn't necessarily cause it directly. There's a lot of phenomena conditioning the next moment. So the experience you're having right now is conditioned by lots of things. Fortunately for me, I am not the cause of your experience right now. I might be one condition in it, but there's what happened to you before you got here, how dinner affected you, how the temperature in the room is affecting you, And we could start to name a million other impacts. So all these different things are coming in and impacting in this constant changing of circumstances. And this points to the third way of seeing is we see all these conditioned phenomena again and again, the impermanent changing thing and we realize that there's no separate me here. That I and you are just as impermanent as everything else. And that we're all affected by conditioned phenomena. So all of these these ways of seeing the suffering and the not-self are all tied into the impermanence itself. So I said a little bit about, you know, what is the what does this understanding do for us? How does it help us? We stop clinging to whether something's pleasant or unpleasant, you know? And if we stop grabbing a hold of it and trying to make it stay, there's all sorts of things that open. Have you ever noticed that um, tendency, like you have a great experience, you go out and you walk outside and there's a beautiful sunset and you go, this is great. I think I should arrange my day so I come outside at this time of day every day. And it'd be really better if I did it with a friend. So I wonder who could come and do this with me. And pretty soon, we're all caught up in trying to hang on to it. Meanwhile, the colors are happening, and there's like this moment-to-moment changing thing. But we're lost in our desire to hold on to it. Of course, William Blake said it great. He says, he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. I love that stanza. He got it completely. That even the pleasant experiences are only... magical and truly pleasant when we let them take their course you know there's a reason we like and we know this on some there's a reason we like a real rose besides the fact it has great smell as opposed to a plastic rose might look the same from a distance or a silk flower rose, I should say, because they're actually quite beautiful. But there's some part of us that understands that the real rose is just here for a flash. Just this day is it perfect. And there's something in that that really resonates with us. We feel how it is in this truth. We, and it's a truth we can see. And we see the preciousness of it. Ajahn Chah said this about impermanence. You might know it. it's. One day, some people came to the master and asked, how can you be so happy in a world of such impermanence, where you cannot protect your loved ones from harm, illness, and death? The master held up a glass and said, someone gave me this glass. And I really like this glass. It holds my water admirably and it glistens in the sunlight. One day the wind may blow it off the shelf or my elbow may knock it from the table. I know this glass is already broken. I know this glass is already broken. So I enjoy it immensely. In some ways, if when we understand that completely, when we understand, I am already dead, then this moment becomes incredibly precious. This retreat is already over. Depending on how your day went, that might be a good thing. (laughs) But that's okay, too. Then you go, yeah, it's gone. But whatever it is, we only have one chance to show up for each moment. Only one chance. The moment that's here, that's the only moment, that's the only chance we have to show up for it. The other thing that this understanding of impermanence really helps us with is a a gaining quality of equanimity. That we see that things come and they go, and that whether it's good or bad or pleasant or unpleasant, we're just sort of riding through it all. It's a great little story. You may have heard it, but I like it, the... um, It's a Nazarene story about a man who, um, you know, it's sort of a farm sort of setting. And the man is there, and he has a horse. And one day his horse breaks out and runs free. And people say, oh, you've lost your horse. Now how are you possibly going to, you know, do the things you need to do? Ride and take care of your field. It's horrible and The man says huh eh, maybe so maybe not and then the next day the horse comes back and it's got another horse with it it found a friend now he's got two horses one's a little wild but he does have two horses And his friends go oh that's fabulous and he goes maybe so maybe not And then he has a son and his son goes and tries to break the, you know, tame the wild horse. And he's riding and it's working out. But then the wild horse throws him, breaks his leg. And people say, so sad, broken leg. Now you have to do all the work yourself. Bad luck. Maybe so, maybe not. Then the neighboring, the ruling kingdom comes and they are decided to go to war and they take all the eligible young men, not ones that have broken their legs though. doesn't go. You get this picture and on it goes and our lives are just like that. Haven't you noticed? Something happens, you lose your job, and you're all in a fit. Maybe so, maybe not. When we stop resisting the fact that it's changing, then we realize we really don't know what is good news, bad news. And that helps us a lot. It helps calm us down. I don't need to track. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? What should I do? It's like, this is what's happening. Okay, we'll go from here. And that's a relief. So how do we practice this? So we have an idea, I've sort of pointed a little bit, but I'll be a little more explicit and we'll talk more about it in the morning. But one of the ways we practice this tuning to the impermanence is specifically watching the arising and the passing, watching the little pieces of experience as they come and go. Mary Oliver puts it this way. She says, it's a poem called Breakage. I go down to the edge of the sea, how everything shines in the morning light. The cusp of the whelk, the broken cupboard of the clam, the opened blue mussels, moonsnails, pale pink and barnacle scarred, and nothing at all whole or shut but tattered, split, dropped by the gulls onto the gray rocks and all the moisture gone. It's like a schoolhouse of little words. First you figure out what each one means by itself, the jingle, the periwinkle, the scallop full of moonlight. Then you begin slowly to read the whole story. And this is what we do in our practice. We just notice how this moment and the next moment, how it's changed, how our experience of it has changed. There's both the content of it and our relationship to it. Both of them are changing. We can watch either one. And we can just keep seeing that. We can see it in our breath, or in sound, or in our energy, in our body, in our emotions. In some ways, the content for this practice of watching impermanence is less important than seeing it, seeing that change. Any sense gate will work. And changing sense gates, because there you can really see how your experience is changing moment after moment. A breath, a sound, a moment. See if as even as I continue to talk, just see if you can let your attention worry less about the words and just how it just keeps changing. Notice how a thought comes and goes, a sound comes and goes, an opinion. Another way that we can practice with this that's very important, and that comes from this attunement to changing moments, is we can watch how and where there is suffering where there is unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, struggle, we can see where it is. And if we're paying attention to this changing phenomena, we can see the conditions that cause it to arise, that lead to its arising, I should say. And then, very, very important, we can continue to watch the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, and see how it changes, and see how it passes. So we can witness in our practice the arising and passing of unsatisfactoriness. And in this we can learn, we can see the potential of freedom and the actual experience of freedom. Again and again. I think one of the most important instructions that I remember hearing was notice when the unsatisfactoriness, when the dukkha is gone. Notice that it was here and then notice when it's gone. And doing all of this with an attitude of curiosity and interest, and as Matthew Ricard pointed out, because you understand that it will lead to freedom. Complete non-resistance to the truth of how things are. This is our freedom. There's a term for it in the Pali, yata I like that term. It has this nice ring to it, yata The nature of how things are. I want to end by reading you a poem. It's written by uh, a, Tajitsu, who was an 18th-century abbess in Japan. She saw that all phenomena arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that even knowing this, arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on. Stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go, and fell into the midst of everything. I'll read it again, and we'll just sit for a couple minutes. She saw that all phenomena arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that even knowing this, arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on, stronger than the cane she held. Nothing to lean upon at all and no one leaning and she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything Thank you for your kind attention. And we'll come back in half an hour for ending with metta. Ah, and chanting. I gave you a preview of the chant.